Good morning. A little audience participation, not too strenuous, I promise. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you like to sit through the credits at the end of the movie in the theater? These are my people. How many of you just get out of there as soon as the credits start to roll? I don't understand. <clears throat> yeah, I do like to sit through the credits. Um, I tend to believe they're still part of the movie, and I paid for the movie, so I should get all that I could possibly get out of it. And sometimes I feel the need to sit through the credits because I continue to be processing or reflecting on something I've seen if a movie has moved me or spoken to me in some way. Several years ago, uh, Kim and I went to see a, a, a beautiful original uh, movie. The director was Rich, Richard Linklater, one of my personal favorites, although I will tell you that for some people he's a bit of an acquired taste. Kim and I went to see his latest film in 2014 called Boyhood. And if you remember Boyhood... It was making the news about that time because it was a film shot over 12 years using the same actors as they age, as the characters age, as the story was told, uh, the actors aged as well. So Mason, the main character in the movie, was six in the opening scene, and by the final scene, he's 18 and he's in college, all played by the same actor. And when the movie was over, I just wanted to sit in the dark and kind of reflect on it a little bit, just process it. And there I was, minding my own business, when... A couple of people we knew, we saw them come in earlier, sitting toward the front, walked up to us and interrupted my meditation. They said, that was weird, huh? I don't remember exactly what I said, but what I wanted to say was, excuse me, you have no idea what you're talking about. That was a beautiful film, and I'd appreciate if you just leave me alone and let me enjoy this. But I didn't say that. Eventually, they, they left. Kim and I continued to sit in silence for a little bit. I was going to say, I've always enjoyed this ritual of sitting through the credits. I figure a whole lot of people whom I will never meet or, or know have put a lot of time and energy and skill into bringing this movie to me, and I want to pay them the slightest courtesy of watching their names roll by in the credits. And these days, of course, you never know if you might get a bonus scene at the end of the credits, so sometimes it's worth staying. I, I, I finally watched uh, Godzilla, King of Monsters, the other day. I was very happy to sit through the credits because I got a little hint there's yet more Godzilla yet to come. I'm very excited. By the time we get to the end of Romans, we may be feeling exhausted. All that rich theology, all that context, all that background information, and all the action of the movie is really kind of over. And when Paul finally writes in chapter 15, verse 33, the God of peace be with you all, amen, we may breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, I was listening to a scholar lecture on Romans 16, and she said that when she teaches her, her uh, students Romans, goes through a semester of teaching Romans, by the time they get to finish Romans 15, they're just exhausted. They just want to move on and do something else. It's tempting to just be done. But if we did that, we would miss out on the richness of chapter 16, for while there are plenty of greetings in chapter 16, we didn't even read them all earlier, there is also a diversity and a richness here that we don't want to miss. Romans 16 is kind of like the credits at the end of the movie. But there are some things in these credits that are worth paying attention to. For these people too, all these people named, have in some way contributed to our understanding of Romans and to Paul's ministry. And as we will discover, there's even a scene after the credits. By now I'm guessing all of us have heard the African proverb it takes a village to raise a child but I want to take that and adapt it a bit 
for uh, this final sermon in Romans. The, the good news that we celebrate this week, the good news that we see played out in the closing cl- credits of Romans is this. It takes a village to build the church, and we are that village. It does take a village to build a church, and we are that village. And that village is made up of different ba- people of different backgrounds and ages and ethnicities. That village is both the universal body of Christ the church and local congregations. And in these closing greetings, Paul is going to show us some of that rich diversity of the body of Christ. So first, let's notice the place of women in these greetings. In this day and age when for some people the the role of women in leadership is still in question, I'm reminded of something a former pastor of mine told me many years ago. During much of his early ministry, he had been, uh, he was one who opposed women in certain roles of leadership, but he had changed his mind. And when I asked him why he had changed his mind, he said it's because he had begun to, he realized he was misreading Paul. He said, because Pauline doctrine cannot contradict Pauline practice, which is a fancy way of saying what Paul says cannot contradict what Paul does. While there are some difficult statements in Paul's letters that seem to restrict the roles of women, there are also plenty of examples where Paul commends women in leadership and challenges the status quo. Therefore, if Paul approved of women in leadership in practice, then we must have misread, misread some of his, his more restrictive uh, passages on the issue. We must be missing something. <clears throat> Romans 16 is one of those places where we see Paul's practice of lifting up women in leadership. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. First of all, it's likely that Phoebe was single since no husband is mentioned, and in that day, in that culture, if there were a husband in the picture, he should have been named as well. Second, she's a Gentile. She comes from an overwhelmingly Gentile region, Sincrea, the port city of Corinth. She's also likely fairly well off financially because she can afford to travel to Rome. And more and more scholars believe that she was likely not just the courier of the letter, but also that she read it out loud to the house churches in Rome. And if she was the reader as well as the courier, then we also know that she was well educated. For very few people in that time could read, and even fewer women. Paul refers to her as a deacon, a word that can be translated in different ways, from servant to minister. It can be a general term, but it can also be uh, an office of leadership. Paul uses this term of himself in 1 and 2 Corinthians and of Jesus in Romans 15. It seems likely that some form of leadership is in view here, as Paul refers to her as a deacon of the church in her hometown. Paul also calls her a benefactor. That's a technical term that refers to a patron of someone who receives support in some kind of way, in the way we might support missionaries on a monthly basis. It's sort of like an ancient Kickstarter campaign. She might have given financially to Paul's work, or she might have hosted meetings in her house, another possible indication that she was well-off or successful in some way. And finally, Paul entrusted this letter to her, and it is undeniable that he would have talked with her about this letter, perhaps even tested out some of his ideas on this letter with her. She was the one, after all, who would be reading it, answering questions about it, and clarifying what Paul meant or thought on these things for the Romans. She was Paul's ambassador. She was one who went in his stead to represent him before others and to teach on these things. Phoebe was very much a woman in leadership whom Paul approved 
and commended to the brothers and sisters in Rome, one whom they should receive well, he said, and support in whatever need she might have. And then the credits begin to roll. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Now Priscilla and Aquila, you may remember, are mentioned several times in our New Testaments. Priscilla's name sometimes, often, appears before her husband, Aquila. Her name appears first in 2 Timothy and three times in the book of Acts, chapter 18, and here. In Acts 18, Priscilla's name occurs first when they, are, when they bring Apollos into their home to explain to him more fully the way of Jesus. So in some situations, and whenever a name comes first in biblical literature, it means something. In some situations, it appears at least, that Priscilla was perceived as the leader. What else do we find? Verse 7, Paul gives greetings to Andronicus and Junia. My fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. <clears throat> Some Bibles may say Junius instead of Junia, suggesting that the person that Paul refers to as an outstanding apostle was a man, not a woman. However, the reality is there is absolutely no evidence of Junius as a man's name during that period at all. And for the first 1,000 years or more of church history, people just assumed that Junia was a woman. John Chrysostom, 4th century pastor and preacher, said of her, how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was deemed worthy of the title of apostle. These and a few other details in Romans 16 tell us that regardless of some of the more restrictive passages that we may find in Paul's writings concerning women, it is clear that Paul valued women, commended them, and lifted them up as leaders in practice. There is a trajectory that takes the place of women from basically second-class citizens, if not property in some instances, and moves them beyond that to places of importance. It is a trajectory that ought to have continued after the New Testament was finished. Officially, the covenant, our denomination, began ordaining women uh, in the late 1970s, but it's taken much longer than that to see women in leadership more widely accepted and respected, and the work is still unfinished. If it takes a village to build a church... Women are very much equal and important citizens in that village. Beyond the importance of women in Romans 16, however, there are some other things I want us to just lift out and to consider. First, let's just consider the number of people Paul names in Romans 16. And I said we didn't read them all. This speaks of community. This speaks of fellowship. One way of understanding a lot of the people here that Paul names in verses 3 through 16 is that some of these people were leaders of house churches based on the five residences that are mentioned in Romans 16 and the possibility of a handful of others that Paul didn't mention, scholar Scott McKnight estimates eight to ten house churches in the city of Rome at this time with a total of somewhere between 100 and 200 people attending. As we might expect from the rest of our time in Romans, among those greeted are Gentiles and Jews, men and women, slaves, former slaves, and free people. This is a diverse group called by Paul to unity, called to be of one mind and of one voice, we learned in last week's passage. When we were discussing, coming up upon this last sermon uh, in the series on the book of Romans, Kurt and I were talking about whether or not he might preach this one, 
on this particular Sunday. So we talked about what direction it might go and the possibilities, and by the end of the conversation, I decided to take it back from him because I wanted to preach it. <clears throat> and one of the things Kurt brought up was a question that I want to pose to you. I think it's an interesting insight. If you were to move away from Lafayette, Indiana, and you were gone a couple of years, and then you were to send back a letter to ECC that was going to be read from the pulpit to everybody gathered here, and you were to make a list of all the people you wanted to greet, how many, how, you want to greet, how many people would be on that list? How many people could you name because of their relationship with you, because of what they meant to you? Put it another way, what is the nature of your relationships currently with the people who are a part of ECC? Can you name as many names as Paul names them? People who meant something to you, people with whom you have shared the history of life and ministry together. I want you to listen to how he phrases some of the ways he talks about some of these people. Verse 8, greet Ampliatus, Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys, which is very close to Stacy, so I'm going to say I'm in the Bible. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Skipping down to verse 12. Greet greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. So many of these greetings speak of authentic relationships and fellowship in worship and in service together. How many names could you or I come up with and name as fondly as Paul names the ones he names in Romans 16, the closing credits of his letter? It's something to think about. What can you and I do now that might enrich our relationships in our community while we're still here, while we're still worshiping and serving together? Whom could you invite to dinner or to dessert this week to nourish our community? our relationships. For if it takes a village to build a church, we are that village. Paul has one more surprise for us, but I want to skip down to the other greetings he sends this time from his co-laborers there in Corinth to the people in Rome. Verse 21, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus sends you their greetings. Again, we have both Jews and Gentiles mentioned. The theme of unity continues and is at work in Paul and his companions there in Corinth as he prays it will be at work among the Romans to whom he writes. Even Tertius, Paul's scribe for this letter, slips in his own greeting I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Finally, Paul sends greetings from Erastus, who is the city's director of public works. I absolutely love this detail. It's easy for us to get that just like uh, the people who made up the house churches in Rome a couple of thousand years ago, they were also, we as well as they, were also called to go out and live faithfully to follow Jesus and to pursue God's purposes in the 97% of their waking hours spent outside of church, small groups, worship, whatever. Erastus was called and sent into the world as an agent of change and redemption in the government of Corinth. He was present among his co-workers and with his employees to bear witness to the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. 
Where has God placed you? Where has God placed you? Where, does, where has God sent you? Where, do, where does God want to be present to others in your presence with them? Where is God leading you to become and be an agent of change and redemption? Then finally, let's back up just a bit. After such this long list of credits, we get a sort of mid-credit continuation of the movie, don't we? Paul, of course, is going to rehearse the main themes in Romans and indeed the main theme in many of his letters, which is unity. If there are famous last words in this passage, here they are. After the incredible theology of the first 15 chapters, sin and salvation and the covenant faithfulness of God, where does Paul finish? I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So for many years at ECC, verses 19 and 20 were the basis for the loudest and most popular song in VBS. If you want to lead it, I'm game. Is that it? Okay. <clears throat> the best part's later. I know. What is it? Yes. There you go. <laughs> Loud. The walls would shake in this place. Very good. Glad I didn't sing that. I don't have to read it to you now, but there it is. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, under your feet. As we hear Paul's strong words here, and this about being innocent of evil, about the promise that God will one day crush Satan underneath our feet, let's, let's keep it in context. What is evil is the division between groupings of people. What is evil is that people do not serve the Lord, but rather serve their own appetites, sowing division and deceiving people by dividing up the body of Christ. There are many things, many sins we could name as evil. But Paul uses this scene near the end of the credits to punctuate the evil of divisiveness, disunity, and discord. Keep away from such people, he says. And we could add, if we're supposed to keep away from such people, we should not be such people either. We should not become such people. If we are the source of division or disunity, we should stop it. As we often like to ask, what next steps is the Spirit of God leading you to take in response to Romans 16, indeed in response to all that we've learned this summer in Romans? It does indeed take a village, a whole congregation of people from different walks of life, different gifts, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic groupings, men, women, teens, children. It takes all of us to help all of us to become what God desires that we become. So I'm going to borrow a couple of possible responses and next steps from last week because they still apply. 
First, if it takes a village, and by implication, our relationships with one another in that village, that church, then I urge you to work on getting to know and better connect with our church body, ECC, and the people who make it up. I urge you to join us for community gatherings beginning on Wednesday, September 11th. If you don't know if you're ready to commit to the classes, come for the meal at 545. You've got to eat. Things, good things can happen around the table. And then, of course, there is the option to continue to learn. There are opportunities to join with God and others in our own transformation, our own Christiformity. You can take part in financial peace, you heard early, to transform your relationship with money and stewardship. You can take part in the art of marriage and transforming your relationship with your spouse. You can take part in the Jesus Creed to transform your own walk with Christ and how you engage your world. And you can take part in love over fear and transform how you relate to those with whom you disagree, people whom you are often tempted to hate or fear instead. Second, you can plan to worship with us on our next Unity Sunday, September 29th. As I said, people, our attendance often goes down on Unity Sunday. That is the day we will have only this service, the late service. All ages will be present. There will be nursery care for younger children. We join together in worship as one to celebrate our oneness in Christ. I challenge you to be there and be a part of that as we celebrate that. Third, you can plan to become more consistent in attending worship with us this fall when we begin a sermon series aimed at redefining our vision with the three touchstones we're going to introduce to you beginning next Sunday, as you saw in that video at the beginning. These are the themes that are proposed by our ministry planning team and our vitality process in concert with council and the pastoral staff. So from this point on, these themes are going to help us better define who we are and what we do as a congregation, these touchstones. If you're not able to be with us on one of those Sundays during that time, make sure you make the time to listen online, to stay in step with where we think God is leading us. Finally, a new response. As a response to the gift that God has given to us in each other, to whom could you write a personal greeting or a word of thanks? You might want to just take out a sheet of paper and just write it like a greeting. Who, who would you write down there? What, why would you put their name? What would you write beside their names? Make a list. Or maybe you can simply write some thank you notes to people for what they mean to you rather than something they've done for you. Paul's letter to the Romans reminds us of God's grand design, God's master plan to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And in doing so, Paul invites you and I to join him. He invites you and I to join with one another and with the Spirit of God and being a part of that plan, even now. How will you take steps to be a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem? How will you take steps to bring healing and wholeness to the division and polarization that tear at the fabric of our nation, our community, and sometimes even our own congregation? Once again, again, I remind you in Jesus' prayer for our unity in John 17, one of the main reasons Jesus prays for our oneness, our unity with Him and one another, is because in our unity, in our oneness, our world will know that the Father sent the Son. It's the best evangelistic tool in the toolkit. When we are one with one another, the world will know that the Father sent the Son. May it be so in our lives and relationships, sisters and brothers. May it be so in our community and world. And may everyone you know or everyone you meet witness the unifying power of the gospel 
and know that God in Christ has come and that God in Christ will come again. Amen.